for brands, I would say, you know, don't be afraid to ask the question. Like all of the partnerships we've gotten that have been really instrumental to growing our brand and growing the upcycled food movement have been because I asked, right? Like I sent them a LinkedIn message. I like, I, I don't have a lot of special connections. I just was like really earnest and said, I think we can help you you know, take your byproduct and use it in ours. Or I think we can help you, you know, reach a new consumer base that cares about these issues. I see that you don't have a vegan and gluten-free option on your menu. Like, how can I help you? So, and then I asked and, you know, they were open to that conversation. This is Evolve CPG, a community of purpose-driven brand leaders who not only believe in better, but actively pursue it. As better products, better brands, better leadership for a better world. Thanks to you, our listeners, this podcast is now ranked in the top 10% of all podcasts globally. Let's not stop there, though. If you like our show, please take a moment to leave us a rating or review and share your favorite episodes with your network. The more people we reach, the more good we can bring about in this world. If you work in the industry, you can also join our online community where we're going further, faster, together at community.evolvecpg.com. I'm your host, Gage Mitchell, founder and creative director of Modern Species, a sustainable brand design agency helping better brands grow and scale their impact. On this episode, we're speaking with Caroline Cotto, co-founder and COO of Renewal Mill, about her passion for nutrition, the upcycling movement, and why collaboration and brand partnerships are the key to both their brand growth and our collective fight against climate change. Great. I'm Caroline Cotto. I'm the co-founder and COO of Renewal Mill. Renewal Mill is an upcycled food company that's focused on fighting food waste at the manufacturing level. So we take the nutritious pulp left over from making plant-based milks and turn them into gluten-free flours that we sell as ingredients as well as also use in our own products like baking mixes and cookies. Awesome. Thanks for popping on the show. I've been wanting to get you on here for a while now. I love what you're doing, upcycling movement, your products, everything. But I'm especially excited to talk about uh, some of your brand partnerships in a little bit. But first, let's let's talk a little bit about your background. I When I was poking around and trying to figure out like what industry you came from or how long you've been in the game or whatever, I noticed that a lot of your past experience centers around like food and nutrition in various ways through uh, Obama's let's move to UN committees to tech stars stuff on nutrition, etc. So where did that passion for food and nutrition come from? Yeah, food has definitely been the through line for my career. I kind of grew up in the industry. My parents own an ice cream store. So from like middle school and high school onward was like in the in the scoop shop. But yeah, I've just always really loved to cook and loved kind of how food brings people together. And through my early career, I spent a lot of time more on the science side, kind of understanding what does food do in your body? And then yeah, what does it look like for child obesity? And also what does it look like for child malnutrition? And then made a hard pivot into tech, was there for a few years, and then decided food is really my passion. Like, how do I combine what I've learned in the tech industry with my passion for food? And that's how I kind of ended up in food tech and then and then in food waste adjacent. Gotcha. Okay. So since you love to cook, I love cooking as well. I've kind of cooked most of my own food since I was a little kid because my mom was super busy running her own business and didn't have a lot of time. So like we would just scrounge and some of the siblings would just open up a can of (laughs) Chef Boyardee or something. And then some of us like me would just root through the fridge and see what I could come up with and and cook. But I'm just curious as a fellow person who loves to cook, what is your favorite thing to cook? Are you a baker? Are you a soup maker? Are you like, do you like to do fancy kind of stuff? What, What is it? Yeah. Definitely not a baker. Very little patience for measuring. So uh, baking mixes are, are kind of my limit in baking. Yeah, I spent a lot of time in Asia. Um, I studied abroad in China and then lived in Taiwan and Cambodia. So I, I love making like variations on Chinese and Taiwanese dishes, kind of a lot of like stir fries and just using a lot of vegetable forward ingredients. So yeah, but definitely every dish is an adventure, kind of like throwing it in the pot, kind of, you know, adjusting (laughs) as I see fit. Not a a lot of recipe following happening over here. Yeah. I mean, that's why I'm also 
struggle with baking too for that exact same reason because I like to do things on a fly. I don't always have all the ingredients I want on hand, so I experiment a lot. And when you're cooking stovetop, you can kind of make those experiments and adjust on the fly. But with baking, you know, you got to get it right, put it in and hope it comes out okay. You can't like adjust as things go. Yeah, we're a very small team and our team is four people, including myself. And two of them are professional bakers by trade. One is a five times James Beard award winning cookbook author in the baking space. And the other is a professionally trained pastry chef who worked in like Michelin star restaurants. And it's like every gram matters in baking, right? Like they have their gram scales out, they're doing it. I'm like, this is so not me, but (laughs) they make delicious things. So And like the moisture that always like catches me off guard because you're like, oh, it would be cool if I added this puree into this like baking thing. And you're like, nope, you can't do that because you just like screwed up all the whole moisture ratios and stuff and it's not going to come out right or whatever. So it's difficult. But wow, I I didn't realize that about the company that you had Michelin star and James Beard award winning people behind the company. That's cool. Yeah, actually, Aaron, who's the trained pastry chef, he actually worked at Patagonia Provisions and before moving over to us. So he kind of was tired of waking up at 4am to do pastry and was like, I still want to be in food. But you know, how do I kind of transition more into just sustainable food at large? So Renewal Mill has been a a great fit for, for him. Nice. That's super cool. So you also mentioned, though, that you kind of came to find a love for the like, the science and nutrition side of things. So <laughs> your parents own an ice cream shop. So I don't know, you maybe didn't get that from them. Where did the, the nutrition side yeah. of your passion come from? It's funny because my parents, they own an ice cream store, but they were like very early adopters of intermittent fasting and like health foods of the 80s. So my mom is kind of a health nut. She's like very focused on eating whole foods and both of them only eat one meal a day. So from an early age, it was kind of like they were very conscious of what they were putting into their bodies. And I think that, you know, (laughs) passed on to me. But when I kind of got to university, it was definitely seeing that food was a huge lever for so many chronic diseases and like problems across the world. And so my major was human science. Most of my classmates went on to become doctors, but I was kind of interested in more of the systemic issue of like, they teach one day of nutrition education in med school when really like nutrition is what's driving so many of the health problems in this country. And also I spent a lot of time understanding like how media affects our food choices. So my thesis was actually on food marketing to children using Dora the Explorer. (laughs) And like if Dora shows you like a healthy food, are you more likely to eat a healthy food? Or if she shows you like chips and soda, are you more likely to eat those things and testing in like preschool age children? So just really interesting of like how much of our culture dictates our food choices and and also access. It was maybe a little while ago, so you might not remember, but what were the results of some of that research? Like, was it, <laughs> was Dora very influential in what people were eating? Yeah. So it actually depends on how strong your parasocial relationship is with the character. So if like young girls identify more with Dora, they're more likely to follow her behavior choices. So if she shows them soda and chips, and they, you know, have a high affinity for Dora, they're more likely to choose soda and chips when given the option between soda and chips and water and a banana. So it can be very, very influential. And we see that, you know, with the cereal industry for ages, like putting cartoon characters on sugary cereals because you're marketing to children. But kind of, yeah, just making it even clearer that, like, you can get very targeted depending on how close the, the child's relationship is with that character. Yeah, I seem to remember at some point the cigarette industry like banned using cartoon characters to advertise tobacco products, probably for the exact same reason. <laughs> they were thinking that, well, exactly. those cartoon characters weren't advertising to kids. It made it more appealing to kids, and then maybe kids would be more curious about those bad choices. So yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, kids are super impressionable, and marketing can be really impactful. So you see that too with like Jewel, right? Like they're. They were marketing a lot to, to teenagers and, and kids. And yeah, it can have profound impacts. Yeah, that also makes me think that you kind of uncovered the power of social media influencers <laughs> as well, because that's a big part of it, right? It's that sort of social proof and authority figure kind of mixed into one. You're seeing 
all your friends or everyone that follows this celebrity that you like doing a certain thing, but also this celebrity has a certain kind of authority over you because you look up to them and want to be like them. So you get like a double combo and maybe even a little FOMO in there, another like persuasive tactic because you don't want to be the one person missing out on like this trend or something and be made fun of at school because you're not eating the same chips or wearing the same clothes. So yeah, it and is I mean, super I think powerful. Parasocial relationships are really important in influencers too, right? Like if you identify and feel like you're friends with the Instagram influencer who's showing you all of these things, then you're probably more likely to purchase from that person because you see yourself in them or you you, you want to. <laughs> be friends with them. So yeah, I think it can be really strong. And even just tying that not to individuals or cartoon characters, but to brands as well, right? If you're the type of person who's a diehard Apple fan, you're going to like buy whatever they put out and you're going to adopt certain design trends or aesthetic or whatever else just because you identify with that brand. Whereas if you're a Microsoft person, you're going to be make different choices in life. So it oh, is sure. super powerful for marketing. That's interesting. I don't know how much you weave that into Renewal Mills marketing, but that would be an interesting <laughs> whole maybe even side conversation to have is like, how do you as a brand use some of this research to make sure people are building more of that connection with your brand so that you can influence them to make healthier choices? But I guess we don't have to go super deep there, but is that something that does come up in your marketing? Yeah, I mean, I think we are marketing our branded products to the person who sees themselves as a sustainable, like upstanding person in society, right? Like you're someone who is choosing plant-based options when they're available. You're, you know, using the toothpaste tablets that, you know, chew in your mouth and add water to. Like you're reducing packaging, you're shopping, you know, you're always bringing your reusable bag to the grocery store. And we fit into that narrative who you see yourself from like how you dress yourself to how you transport yourself to how you, you know, bake products in your home. You're kind of like a sustainable focused person that's looking for options better for you and better for the planet. I think what's a little bit more challenging is how do you encapsulate that into a, a brand identity that someone identifies with? Like, I think Olipop has done a really good job, right? Like you're, you're someone who's drinking an Olipop. Um, and I think we're trying to do that with baking, but it's just been a little bit more challenging. So how do we like make it so that it's a status symbol as well, right? Like, oh, I'm someone who bakes renewal mill products. And that's kind of the equivalent of someone who drinks Olipop over drinking Coca-Cola. Yeah, like to figure out how do you could become the Tom Shoes or the Prius or the, you know, whatever of food. And maybe it is a little harder with food. But yeah, you're right. Like Olipop, I was just literally having a conversation with people not in this industry. And they were talking about how much they love like these functional beverage like Olipops. And when I asked them why, they said, oh, well, I don't even know what prebiotics or, you know, probiotics or any of those things are, but like, they're just like healthier, healthier drinks. And like, you ask them, well, what do you mean by healthier? And they're like, I don't know, I guess just less sugar. And <laughs> like, they, they honestly didn't even know why they were buying it. They were just buying it because of the perception of it being better for you, right? So, it is interesting how the brand can supersede any of the product attributes as well. Like if you just put yourself out there as like, this is the better choice. You don't even have to, the consumer doesn't even have to have the education or awareness around <laughs> those issues. They'll just believe you if you build a good brand, right? Yeah. It's not only that they don't have to, but often that they don't, right? I think it's interesting right now what's going on with like the White House conference and like redefining healthy, talking about putting health scores on food or like, you know, some of these beverages with claims about like prebiotic fiber from apple cider vinegar. I was just listening to another podcast this morning that was kind of unpacking like, is there actually any health benefit to apple cider vinegar? Probably not, right? But <laughs> people just <laughs> yeah. assume that, yeah, if, if, if it says it on the package that it's healthier, then it, it must be. And this was something I saw too, like when I worked for the UN World Food Program briefly in Cambodia, this isn't just a problem that happens in American grocery stores. We were dealing with an issue there of rice fortification. So trying to fortify the rice for Cambodian students who deal with stunting. But their parents were feeding them like packaged puff rice snacks made by Nestle that they could buy at the market because there was just the, this perception that if it's packaged, it must be safer for my child. Versus if they fed them the traditional Cambodian diet of rice and fish and vegetables, 
they would have much less of a problem with stunting and nutrient deficiency. So it goes all the way down as far as like, how do you communicate to consumers in a way that's truthful? Yeah, that's super scary too, because uh, so many countries, whether they like the United States politically or not, a lot of countries look up to our, you know, the thriving middle class and all these other kind of things that are great about America. And then therefore they try to, and they watch our TV shows and our movies and whatever. And then they try to adopt some of that same culture and, but our culture is not healthy, you know, at large. Like we're trying to make changes, you know, Renewal Mill and others are out there trying to change it. But by and large, like we have a pretty toxic food culture and uh, it's destructive to the environment, it's destructive to our health, et cetera. So when other people, other countries, other cultures try to adopt some of that, it just makes me shake my head and like, dang it, what are we doing? Like we have all this power of influence like so many other countries look up to us, you know, they may also hate us, but like they look up to some of our culture and we're wasting that. We're, we're, we're teaching them bad habits and it's, it. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's something you don't necessarily understand until you work in the food industry. Like, you know, you can talk about like, we need to eat whole foods. We need to eat more vegetables. Um, we need to eat less processed food, but until you work in the industry and understand that it, it really feels like a race to the bottom. Like even if you're trying to be the brand that's using better ingredients, that's, you know, doing clean label, that's doing all these things, like ultimately you have to make money. And the way that the industry is structured, it's like meant set up to use the bottom of the barrel ingredients that are cheaper so that you can make a margin because you're getting squeezed at every turn. And I think that's a disheartening part of it. It's like, okay, how do we actually transform this industry to make it possible to offer better options for Americans and and set that precedent for the world? Yeah, absolutely. And I think a big part of that like, is capitalism, by which I mean, <laughs> yeah. capitalism has advantages, right? It creates opportunities for people to innovate and, and create things that didn't exist before. But it also means that you're going to have stakeholders involved that care about their return on their investment more than anything else. And I think that's where a lot of that pressure to like make things cheaper and increase your margins and whatever comes from. Because you could have perfectly fine margins and be a perfectly sustainable financially business and you could just keep rolling like that and grow slowly and you don't have to compromise on anything. But it's when you have to grow super fast to please your stakeholders that you have to start cutting corners and finding ways to increase margins and whatever else you can do, like put pressure on your supply chain and pay them even less. And that's where, you know, things like fair trade become important. But it's that pressure to grow fast and increase margins at all costs that I think really hurts things. But I don't think that has to be. If you could just take a more slow organic growth path and you know, make money over time, not in five-year span that these investors are pressuring you to, then you can keep a high-quality product and still make money. And I believe that's what I've seen, at least. Yeah. I think we need to be spreading that message far and wide, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. But it's just all the pressure you get. You know, as a CPG company, you need so much cash to run these businesses. So you have to go get that cash somewhere. And then you bring on investors who are like, yeah, I want to be out of this in five or 10 years. And I want to make 5x, 10x, 10x whatever yeah. <laughs> yeah. on my return. So get at it. Like, and then the founders have to start compromising their ideals, which is which is rough. But anyway, we could geek out on this for a little while, but we were talking about kind of some of your background in food and nutrition and, and other things like that. So at what point did Renewal Mill, like how did Renewal Mill come to be? How did you connect with your co-founders? Why this specific product mix? Like what was the story behind this? Yeah. Um, so I was working for a food tech accelerator at the time, um, kind of helping incubate 10 different businesses along the food supply chain. And that's where I met my co-founder for Renewal Mill. Her name is Claire. And she had previously owned a juicing business in Boston. She, you know, survived cancer in her early 20s, was really passionate about bringing local organic produce to downtown Boston, um, started as a food truck. And then when she opened her first like brick and mortar business, was ultimately appalled by all of the fruit and vegetable pulp that she was throwing out every day because it was super expensive to purchase all of that. And then, you know, she was throwing like a 60% of it into the trash. And so she tried using it in things like crackers and muffins and, but there was just too much. She couldn't do all the things she wanted to do with it. 
So she ended up going to grad school for environmental management. And through that experience, had a fortuitous conversation with the owner of Hodo Foods, which is a large tofu company based here in Oakland. And he was like, you think you make a lot of pulp in your like tiny juicing business? You know, I'm making tons and tons of soybean pulp every week that if I'm lucky, we'll go to animal feed. And if I'm not lucky, it goes to landfill. And so they kind of nerded out over this pulp waste problem and said, like, this is super nutritious. Um, it's actually sometimes the most nutritious part of the fruit or the most nutritious part of the soybean. And we're throwing money out the door and it has a huge environmental impact. Like there has to be a better way. So that's how the idea for Renewal Mill was started. We got our hands on some Okara, or I guess Claire did, and started um, kind of like you know, dehydrating it and milling it because okara, which is the name for the pulp left over when you make soy milk, it starts spoiling within like four hours after production. So you really have to deal with it quickly. And so she was dehydrating it and turning it into a flour and just found that it had a really storied history in countries like East in Japan and East Asia, where a lot of people make soy milk at home. And you would never throw that pulp away if you made soy milk in your home you would use it so they would like saute it with vegetables or create a savory pancake with it and it's about 60 percent fiber and 20 percent protein so it's like super high in fiber and it also is very neutral in taste very neutral in color and so we quickly found that there was an opportunity to bring this to the market as an ingredient so claire brought the idea to the accelerator for renewal mill and I met her I had also been exploring food waste on my own having recently learned of the massive problem of 40% of our food going to waste and it was just a really natural fit so I joined her as a co-founder and we went on to raise our first round of capital as we were talking about to kind of scale up this idea of how do we take the pulp leftover not only from soy milk production but also oat milk production and other byproduct streams where all of this value is currently being lost and we can return that nutrition to the food system. Gotcha. Okay, that's interesting. So how did you go from, okay, let's solve food waste in general and there's all this pulp from juicing and then you find out there's pulp from other things like plant-based milk or tofu or whatever. And, you know, there's byproducts in like almost every supply chain, but you, you found like a focus area. But then how did you decide what products to make with that? Because I imagine, like you said, historically in cultures that use a lot of soy, there's lots of different uses for this byproduct. So how did you settle on baking mixes? Yeah. So originally we started just as an ingredients company and we had the okara. We turned it into a flour. We called it a flour because Americans are more familiar with baking with flour than powder, you know, <laughs> which is what it's called in Japan, like okara powder. And we would show up to events and say, like, we have this awesome ingredient. You should try it. And people were like, I've never heard of this. What is okra flour? Like, this looks suspect. And so we needed a vehicle for people to try the flour. And we decided on the chocolate chip cookie, like America's favorite chocolate chip cookie. You can swap in this flour. You know what a cookie tastes like. This cookie is delicious. And, you know, make that mental gap jump for them. And so, we, yeah, then once we kind of started with cookies, we were selling those primarily into offices in the Bay Area as snacks for their like micro kitchens until the pandemic. And then that sales channel kind of disappeared overnight. And we were kind of had already been thinking of other ways to use these flowers. We do sell them directly to consumers, but there is a bit of a learning curve, right, to using one of these ingredients. It doesn't perform exactly like an all-purpose flour. So we said, okay, we want to make this easy and approachable for consumers. Baking mixes is a great next step up from just the pure flour. And so all of our baking mixes are just add oil and water. They're really easy to use. They each feature one of our hero ingredients being one of the upcycled ingredients from these milk pulps. And then we also took that opportunity to reformulate our ready-to-eat cookies. So we relaunched our chocolate chip skew and then a second salted peanut butter ready-to-eat cookie skew. Just because people were doing a lot of baking during the pandemic while they were home, but historically the baking aisle has much slower velocities than ready-to-eat products. So as we think about the future of our company, it will probably be headed more towards the the ready-to-eat side of things as well. Hey, y'all. We're going to take a quick break to let you know about a new podcast called Climify for designers, educators, and sustainability geeks. Host and design educator Eric Benson interviews acclaimed climate scientists and sustainability experts 
to find out how designers can help combat the climate crisis in their college classrooms. The discussions on this program are geared to help you climify your syllabi to assign projects that not only teach design fundamentals, but also can have a positive impact on our climate. You can find Climify on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you want to join the conversation and become a climate designer, you can follow the show on Instagram at Climify Podcast or head over to our great teaching resources at climatedesigners.org slash edu. All right, now let's get back to our conversation. Well, I was going to talk about this a little later, but I feel like this is a good transition because you've also been doing a lot of brand partnerships with Sir Latab, William Sonoma, Miyoko's, Salt and Straw, like help like adding an upcycled selling point to their products or adding their kind of brand awareness to your product. So how did those partnerships come about and how does that kind of paint the picture of, of where you're planning to take Renewal Mill? Yeah, I think partnerships have been a huge part of our strategy because like I said at the top of this podcast, we're a very small team and we understand that our brand value is, you know, strong, but small, right? So it's, it's growing. So partnerships has been a key way to find adjacent audiences that we think will care about this topic and will like our products and expand our awareness to their audience and vice versa in a sustainable way. And that's not like paying for one-off influencer campaigns that we found to be a lot less successful, right? So we have been very targeted. We're trying primarily to focus on like women-owned businesses for a lot of our partnerships or people who have explicit plant-based or climate-friendly pledges. So the way that the Miyoko's partnership came up was I'm friendly with the sustainability director at Miyoko's. And she was like, hey, you know, we have all this butter left over at the end of our production runs that, you know, we're not able to use just because of the way that the processing line is. It's not enough to make full, you know, batches of blocks of butter. So is there something you could do with this? And we said, yes, you know, that's exactly what we do. We upcycle. So we took all of the end of run butter that would otherwise been going to waste, combined it with our Okara flour and made vegan ready to eat cookies with it. And then co-branded it with Miyoko's because we're both women-owned brands. We're both in the Bay Area. We're both vegan brands. And so it was just a really natural fit to kind of share that story between the two of us. Very cool. And And are those often like a one-off limited edition kind of thing? Like you just did that for a certain run? Or is that something that you you feel like will be kind of an ongoing product now is is these partnerships? Yeah, it depends a lot. I would say for the Miyoko's one, it is an ongoing product partnership. So we used to use sustainably grown palm oil in our cookies, and we really wanted to phase that out. So the Miyoko's butter was actually a great way to be a fat source for our product. And we continue to see that as, you know, we, we're not going to change that. So that's now a staple of our of our product and the way that we formulated it. So that'll, that'll be evergreen. <laughs> for a partnership like Salt and Straw, which is an ice cream company started in Portland, and they've expanded all down the West Coast, and they have, they have over 25 s- scoop shops now. They do Veganuary every January, where they have all of their specialty flavors are vegan, and they are passionate also about the climate. So we partnered with them for Veganuary last year to create like a special upcycled vegan flavor. And that was only for the month of January, but it was a, you know, a great way to get in front of their audience that that cares about the climate and and vegan friendly food. That's cool. Yeah. I love, that's one of my favorite things about Salt and Straws that they're always shaking it up and doing something new. Like when they came up to the Seattle market, they launched by just partnering with a bunch of Seattle-based chefs to like create mm. really interesting ice cream recipes. And they were doing like crazy stuff. I think one that I had, I think it was something like black pepper brittle with like duck fat ice cream and like wow. raspberry like jam or I don't know. It was like just this crazy thing that you're just like, what? <laughs> what are you <laughs> What are you even talking about? Like, I didn't know any of those things were a thing in ice cream, but you try it and you're like, oh, okay, wow, this is amazing. I can see why it all works together. Like, probably scary for less adventurous people, but just really cool things. So, I didn't see personally the salt. I haven't been to a salt and straw in a little bit uh, because I moved down to Olympia and they don't have one down here, but I'd be excited to see a renewal mill (laughs) on the menu if I went back there again for a future Veganuary. Yeah, for sure. I really respect them too. I think it takes people pushing the envelope and getting 
people to expand their horizons of like what is food, especially when it comes to things like upcycled. That's probably the biggest barrier that we have is getting consumers to understand like, is this safe? Where did it come from? What does it taste like? What is this, you know, name for it? And I think using things that people love like ice cream are a great way to sort of to do that same similarly to what we've done with our cookies is like okay like you love ice cream now like let's take it a step further and just push it a little bit more yeah okay so like the baking mixes and cookies you know there's an obvious tie there you can either buy a cookie (laughs) or you can buy the mix to make your own cookie and then the ice cream is a little bit of a further stretch away from like baking and such but but obviously based on your ingredients kind of makes sense. So like as you're thinking about partnerships or even just the future of your own kind of renewal mill solo branded products, like what category are you kind of focusing on or you kind of just want to kind of take over the whole grocery store or or something like that? Yeah. So we just partnered recently, as you mentioned, with Sir La Tab. Those were our kind of our first breakfast baking mixes because historically we've been doing more desserts. So they're using our upcycled okara flour in a crepe mix and two types of pancake mixes. We definitely continue to have a a strong base in the baking aisle. Um, It's kind of where our roots are and we're branching out from there. But I think, like I said, just the velocities are and the reality is that more consumers in America are looking for ready-to-eat products. So we're going to continue to move, I think, into sweet baked goods right now. Like as much as I care about like nutrition and health right now, our, our product and brand ethos is really to unseat things like traditional packaged chocolate chip cookies full of preservatives. And like, if you're going to reach for a grandma's brand cookie in a convenience store, like, how can we make that a renewal milk cookie? Because it's, you know, better, slightly better for you and the planet, even though we're using things like traditional cane sugar. But I think we also are starting to explore alternative sweeteners. So we have a new mix coming out at the end of this month that's using just date sugar. So that's our first product that's only going to have no cane sugar in it as far as a baking mix. And then ultimately probably moving into to salty snacking as well after doing some more in the, the sweet baked goods section. Yeah, it is kind of funny when you have a specific mission as a company or values as a founder, but then there's specific opportunities in the market that you want to tackle. Like a previous episode with Mark Samuel from I Want Organics he doesn't snack. (laughs) He's a super health focused person. He eats mostly just like pure whole like vegetables, you know, meat, etc. And I'm pretty sure he eats meat. But anyway, he's just a very healthy eater. But his company focuses on snacks, (laughs) not because he eats a lot of snacks, but because he knew there is a lot of garbage in the snacking world, and especially mostly like sweet stuff. And he felt like there needed to be more savory things in snacking and especially better for you things that are full of protein and fiber and stuff instead of just uh, simple carbs. So, and same with you, like you said, you're not like you're into nutrition and, and would maybe if it was just purely up to you would want like more plant-based foods or whatever, but, or sorry, like plant-based, like pure whole vegetables and stuff like that is like kind of the way you eat. But the company's opportunity is to like come in and make slightly better for you, but definitely better for the planet, baked goods or uh, baking mixes, et cetera. So it is kind of funny how that happens sometimes as you end up in a space that maybe isn't your consumer habits, but is definitely a need in the market. For sure. And I think it's all about those small nudges, right? Like if I learned anything in obesity research and stuff, it's that behavior change is super hard. And I think people are like, well, just eat healthier. And you're like, you know, there's so much that goes into food and like what it means to you and how you have access to it and stuff. So if we can just make the choices on shelf slightly better and keep nudging it more towards other things, I think that's that's where it starts. And then I definitely see like the use cases for our product too. Like if I'm running to a, a friend's birthday party and I don't have a lot of time, right? I I would rather opt for a renewal mill baking mix that I can bring as something that I made in my kitchen um, rather than just something I purchased. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, So we talked about some of the slightly better for you, you know, less sugar, more fiber, hopefully also more protein based on your, your core ingredients and stuff. But we've also talked a little bit about the better for the planet, like the upcycling and plant-based and stuff. But I know that you're heavily involved in the upcycled food association, which is a fast growing organization kind of behind a very fast growing trend in the food space of 
upcycled foods through their upcycled certification, but also just raising awareness around what upcycled food even is so that people understand that it's just really great food that also happens to help with climate change. So let's nerd out there a little bit. Like, how did you first get involved with the Upcycled Food Association? And I think you're maybe like the board president or something right now as well, right? Yeah, yeah. I've been the board president for about three years now. Um, it's Time flies. <laughs> yeah, but I think the Upcycled Food Association started really organically because, you know, people kind of now have a basic fluency that food waste is a problem. But even five years ago, that was not the case. So we started every conversation with like, did you know that food waste is a problem? That you're, you know, throwing this much of your plate away, that it has this much carbon impact? Like if food waste were a country, it would be the third largest emitter of greenhouse gases. I think a lot of people now know that food waste is an issue. And now they're kind of like, what can I do to help? But, you know, back three to five years ago, everybody was talking about food waste and upcycled food in a disparate way. Like some people were saying, no, you can't put waste anywhere on your package. And so we're talking about, you know, rescued food and things like that. And others were like, no, like we want to be really forward about it. And we needed a, a centralized word to talk about this. And so that's kind of, we started as a Facebook group. There was a few of us, especially in the Bay Area, kind of like, how do we make this a movement? Because we kept we because we sell ingredients, we kept talking to like R and D folks at large Fortune 500 food companies and being like, "Upcycled food is going to be a trend. Trust us." And they're like, "Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> sure, it is. I don't sure believe it you. Is. Yeah, like, <laughs> and we're like, no, no, really, it is. Like, you, you could be an early adopter." And they were like, "No." And so, with the Upcycled Food Association, it, it gave us the agency to create the first formal definition of upcycled food and to build this movement around a centralized term so that people make it very clear for consumers that when you see upcycled food, you know that you're helping fight food waste, which is a large driver of climate change. So by the transitive property, by buying upcycled food, you're helping fight climate change. And I think that was was really important. And then also giving legitimacy to the industry through the certification process so that it's not a random word that people are slapping on their packaging, but there's, you know, a third party agency that's actually verifying that this food would have gone to a food waste destination and instead is being repurposed into the supply chain. And then you're saving all of the water and resources that went into growing that food that would have otherwise been thrown away and preventing methane if it was to end up in a landfill. Yeah. So your early predictions of it becoming a trend were obviously true because I feel like it's one of the faster growing areas I've seen in the CPG space right now, like that and regenerative are kind of like head to head, just kind of both carving out some space in the market. And then with the certification, it just seems to be exploding <laughs> in terms of like more and more people getting certified or just talking about the certification or getting press coverage around it. So how do you feel like that's going to the, uh, at this point, like it's been growing fast. Do you f see it growing even faster or growing at the same pace? Like what are you seeing for the adoption of upcycled foods right now? Yeah, I think it's interesting. You're like, oh, you know, it became a trend. It's, we made it a trend, right? Like this has been 24 hours a day, my life's work for the last five years <laughs> to like make this on top of people's minds. I think we've done a good job within the industry of making it top of mind for people. Like most people who work in CPG food have at least heard of upcycled food at this point. I don't think that's true for the average consumer if you went into a store and, and surveyed them. So I think that's really where our work lies is on making the average consumer not only understand what upcycled food is, but care and be willing to purchase it. And I think a lot of that comes down to price parity as well, like making these products a no-brainer for people like, oh, okay, I can you know go in and I can choose the upcycled pasta, or I can choose the regular pasta, and it's the same price, but I have this, you know, climate benefit. So why would I not? But yeah, the certification has been great. But I think you see things like organic and non GMO, they took a really long time to get that mainstream consumer adoption. And it takes the part of retailers, frankly, to drive that a lot as well. So Whole Foods last year mandated that every product in their store be non-GMO and have some sort of non-GMO certification. We're going to need more people doing that with things like Upcycled or at least putting it in the forefront of what they care about and offering that to their consumers. So I think that will help. But I think it's the road is still quite long to making consumers understand and care. Yeah. And, you know, these kind of movements take some time to grow, like even 
non-GMO while it exploded much faster onto the scene than uh, organic, it's still taken it like 10 years to get to a point where Whole Foods is like drawn the hard line, right? So yeah, it takes for time sure. for these things to grow and, and for consumer awareness, but at least with upcycled compared to something like organic, we have the advantage of being relatively easy to explain in comparison. Like it would take you like two hours and a long slide deck presentation to explain everything that goes into organic. But with upcycled foods, you can kind of explain it in a sentence fairly well, right? And most people are like, okay, that makes sense. And it crosses political boundaries, right? Like organic has some issues with politics with some sides saying like, oh no, GMOs are the only way to go. And like other people saying, no, it's untested science and whatever. And there's this political battle, but I don't think anyone out there is going to say, you know, preventing food food waste waste is, (laughs) is a bad thing. Right. So it's like cross political parties. It's easier to explain. It makes sense from an environmental standpoint, for sure. Like don't waste stuff, but hypothetically speaking at scale, it also very much so makes sense from an economic standpoint too, because all that waste is just money down the drain. Whereas if you can turn that into ingredients or new products or something like that, you're capturing that revenue. Granted, like the the hurdle is processing that stuff, dehydrating it, whatever, right? But like if you get that down from a scale standpoint, then it makes sense on every angle. So in my mind, I could see this continuing to grow without too many hurdles. It just takes time. It just takes time to reach all the eyes and ears of all the consumers out there and then get retailers to buy in more wholly, right? It does make sense, but I think we purchase with our eyes and our taste buds, like top of mind, right? So like it can make the most logical sense in the world, but I think you really have to win consumers over on the taste and the convenience factors. And so I think it's really important that upcycled food companies double down on that and that the products taste delicious, right? Because if somebody has a negative experience with an upcycled food and then they're like, oh yeah, and this came from waste or, you know, things that were going to go to waste, like it just accelerates a flywheel of it not being a delicious product. And so I think we really focus on that at Renewal Mill. Like first and foremost, our product is delicious. We do market it heavily as upcycled and it's secondary to taste. Like chef crafted is is really top of mind. Well, that's good that you have uh, Michelin star and uh, all of a sudden I'm spacing on the other one. The uh, Oh, James Beard. Yeah. James Beard. There you go. Uh, award-winning people behind the brand. So that's super helpful. And yeah, you're totally right. I think that's some of the struggle of like, quote unquote, health food industry, for example, is that in the first 10, 20, 30 years of health food kind of trying to hit mainstream, it all tasted like garbage and had horrible texture and everything else. So like a lot of people got this bad mental perception of health food, whereas it doesn't have to taste like garbage. and It doesn't have to be disgusting and feel like cardboard, you know, and it just took the industry a little to remember that you need to also make things tasty. And I think the same thing with organic in early days, people weren't trying that hard on product development. They were just trying to give you an organic option, but, but they eventually realized it has to be better in every way. So I think upcycled food has a bit of an advantage there in that there's nothing inherently bad about the movement. You're just like capturing ingredients, right? Like you're not, it's not entirely about removing all the sugar or all the fat or whatever, which can make things a little bit more difficult. So I think good quality products from day one are are easier or in this movement. So to your point, as long as all the brands kind of focus on that product quality and, and don't taint consumer perception of upcycled, then we should be good there. Yeah. And making sustainability sexy kind of to the earlier point of like brands that you want to align yourself with. I feel like upcycled brands are like, yeah, we want to make them kind of like a sexy option of like, you care about this and it tastes delicious and you can be kind of the star of your dinner party when you're serving upcycled foods. Yeah. Nice. That's awesome. Well, I'm excited to see how it continues growing and appreciate all that you renewal mill Upcycled Food Association and all the other kind of brands behind it are doing to push that movement forward. Because as I think you've mentioned on the show, and we've definitely mentioned it in past episodes, food waste is one of the biggest challenges we need to overcome to fight climate change. And upcycled food is one of the best ways to fight food waste. So I'm excited to see that continue growing. Yeah, certainly the most delicious way to fight food waste. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm sure we could geek out for hours more on all your product developments, health benefits, and the future of the industry, et cetera. But 
figured as we're kind of running close on time here, it might be nice to shift for a moment and give you some opportunity to share some wisdom with others out there, whether it's conscious consumers trying to eat healthier, live more sustainably, or other brands trying to do things the right way, fight fight food waste or grow their business in a financially sustainable way where they're not cutting product quality over and over again, like we were talking about before. So what are some of your go-to tips for conscious brands or consumers? Yeah, I think it's important to ask questions and be curious and just like, yeah, understand where your food comes from as a conscious consumer and really demand better as far as like, like I was saying, if there is parity on shelf between, you know, Betty Crocker and Renewal Mill, like what are the mental barriers that are preventing me from choosing one option over the other um, and trying to sort of break those down for yourself? And then for brands, I would say, you know, don't be afraid to ask the question. Like all of the partnerships we've gotten that have been really instrumental to growing our brand and growing the upcycled food movement have been because I asked, right? Like I sent them a LinkedIn message. I like, I, I don't have a lot of special connections. I just was like really earnest and said, I think we can help you, you know, take your byproduct and use it in ours. Or I think we can help you, you know, reach a new consumer base that cares about these issues. I see that you don't have a vegan and gluten-free option on your menu. Like, how can I help you? So, and then I asked and, you know, they were open to that conversation. So I think, a lot of people come to me and they're like, oh my God, it's amazing. You're you know doing all of these partners. So I'm like, you can do this too. Just ask, come to the table, curious about how you can partner and uplift each other because it really is a two-way street. And I think that's the key to climate change in general is like nobody can do this alone, right? So we're one small brand. We're three, four people here doing our best, but we really need to rely on other people to get on board as well. So yeah, just doing it together. And also why we're so invested in the Upcycled Food Association is because we need everybody working towards this goal. Amazing. I love it. The ask questions slash be curious is always one of my pieces of advice for other designers looking to get more into sustainability or impact-driven work for the same reasons. Like if you ask a lot of questions, you're going to uncover some things that are just the way they are because that's the way they've been, not because they should be that way. So you'll uncover opportunities to improve the system, improve your products, improve the brands, improve whatever by just being curious and asking questions. But I love that you kind of flip that to the consumer as well, is that if we can get more consumers to ask questions about where their food comes from or you know how it affects their health or how it makes them feel or whether or not it's contributing to the greater good, then hopefully they'll go out and find answers to those questions that lead them to things like regenerative, organic, upcycled, et cetera. And then they will help drive that demand. So I love that. Yeah. I think those are my favorite kind of sticky problems when you come to an end where it's like, oh, you just throw it in the river because that was the easiest thing to do. Like, okay, like let's, you know, double down and kind of use our creativity here. Those are the, the moments where I'm like, yeah, we, we can do things better. Yeah. Yeah. It is always funny when you <laughs> ask why somebody's doing something like throwing, you know, a perfectly valuable byproduct away or whatever. And you're like, wait, why are you doing that? And they're like, I don't know. That's, yeah, this <laughs> that's the just way it's the way it's been. been done. So yeah. I don't know. It is <laughs> totally. always funny. Like, okay. And nobody questions. All right. But that's also like, people are just so busy trying to focus on the thing that there's so many other pieces that they forget. I call it the invisible system because mm. we're so hyper-focused on this one end product that we don't even see everything else. Like we're blind to it after a certain point. It takes someone else coming in and asking questions because they can obviously see this weird flaw right there. But when you're deep into it, it's hard to see sometimes. Your other piece of advice uh, around just asking, right? Just reaching out to people and asking, you know, if they want to collaborate, if they want to work together on something, et cetera, is good advice. Advice that I probably need myself, but I hear other people, again, to mention Mark Samuel again, that's something he's always talking about on his LinkedIn is as a salesperson, just ask for the sale. Just like reach out and ask because beating around the bush and and being shy about it does nobody any good. Whereas if you just ask, the worst thing that can happen is they say no or not right now or whatever. So I feel like I, I like that advice and that's something I probably need to take more too is is, you know, I overthink things a lot and I, I could just go go and start a conversation and ask. So that's a good piece of advice too. For sure. Yeah. I think a lot of, especially female entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs in general, but sometimes are like, people are like, oh, why? Like, who am I to ask this question? And I'm like, 
who are you not to, right? Just like go in <laughs> yeah. and say, you know, if you want, like not in a spammy way, obviously, but like if you honestly think you have a solution or an opportunity to uplift each other's brands, like why would you not have that conversation for sure? Exactly. And I, one thing that's always helped me to try to overcome it is just if, if you think about it as a win-win, right? If you're not you're not reaching out to them to ask for something, you're reaching out to offer something as well. So when you come into it with that mindset, I think that was part of Seth Godin's marketing seminar too, is he, he, he tells you like sales isn't like you going out and begging for people for something. Like if you've got a good product or service that's going to make someone's life or business better, you're depriving them by not pitching it to them. So don't like shy away from your sales. Your sales is actually you offering benefit to someone and why wouldn't you want to do that, right? So totally, um, I yeah. think that's a good I, way to think of it too. I'm a big Seth Godin fan. I used to coach for his alternative MBA program, which oh, very cool. much is about like breaking down the constraints you put on yourself and asking why. And I think there's so many that of those things that people put on themselves that you're like, no, just if you step back and say like, you know, why is this the way it's done and move forward through that, it, it can go a long way. Absolutely. That just comes back to your first piece of advice too. Just ask questions, right? Just <laughs> it's a circle. Always ask, yeah. <laughs> always ask why things are done that way. And if it doesn't make sense, change it. Like, yeah. why not? Just try something else. Cool. Well, again, we could uh, geek out on these topics forever, I'm sure. Uh, maybe we'll just have to have you back on at some point to go deeper in some of these areas. But for the time being, I appreciate you, again, doing what you're doing you know, personally for food and nutrition through Renewal Mill, trying to like push upcycled foods and healthier foods forward through Upcycled Food Association, trying to grow awareness for upcycled food and fight food waste. Just all the things you're doing are great. So I appreciate you doing what you're doing and then for taking a little time out of your day to come and share some of what you're up to with our community. Yeah. And you as well. Yeah. I think it, so much of the food industry is about people and the community. So having Evolve CPG and others is super important. So I appreciate you as well. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Caroline or Renewal Mill, go to renewalmill.com. Subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel for more innovator interviews, expert advice, and leadership discussions. If you like this episode, leave a heart, thumbs up, or review and share it with your colleagues. As an ever-evolving show, we also love feedback, so send us your thoughts or ideas for who we should talk to next to evolve at modernspecies.com. Modern